Pronto. This is Learning Matters, a bridge to practice. And I'm your host, Scott Macklin, here at Studio Yara at Trinity Western University in beautiful British Columbia. Today we have with us Randy Eggstrom. And Randy has been a passionate advocate and organizer of culture and community development for over 15 years. He's currently an adjunct faculty member at Seattle University Arts Leadership Program. And up until the end of this month, has been the, the director of the Office of Arts and Culture for the city of Seattle, where he expanded investments in granting programs, public arts, and establishing new programs and policies in arts education, cultural space, and racial equity. Randy, welcome. Tell me something good. Uh, I think democracy survived the week. Um, and I think that on the strength of black female organizers in Georgia, we might have a government that can work for people again. We at least got a shot. We and that's shot. better than I thought. That's better than I thought at about noon on Wednesday. It, it, it's really a fascinating, if, if you think about all the things that may have pushed an awareness in this country that something is awry or out of sync with leadership. But it took the storming of an insurrection on a space that may have created enough of a buffer that it was like that hold up, wait a minute moment may have stuck, which may create the possibility that we can actually build on good stuff. So it, it just leads me to start, and I've been really thinking about spaces and how important spaces can be, particularly in a context that we're living in where we are um, exiled from our spaces and in a sense separated from the people that we tend to want to work with, but having to do it in new ways. So part of what we're trying to explore in this series is how do we actually hold space when we're physically not able to, um, to be together? So I'm wondering if we could start off talking about as someone who leads and gets to work with amazing people, how, how has your work shifted over the past set of months, if not this entire year? Uh, that's a big question. I mean, I think, um, you know, COVID hit Washington first, hit Seattle first. And so we were a little bit of the tip of the spear when the pandemic swept its first wave, at least. And, my job shifted pretty dramatically in March to sort of citywide COVID response, uh, relief and recovery specifically. And, um, you know, I, I've never been more proud of the work I've done in my career than I was in those first few months in like March, April and into May including being the first COVID relief fund established by a government agency in the country, um, helping to seed the artist relief fund that Ijeoma Oluo started and that Langston picked up and wound up investing over a million dollars in artists who were impacted by COVID, the largest funder in the state of Washington. So just like really incredible stuff happened. It changed the way I work because it stripped away a lot of the bureaucracy and a lot of the process and a lot of the, um, Byzantine elements and it and it laid bare that at the end of the day art gives us hope and art connects us 
and the work of artists has never been more important than when we're all forced into separation. And I saw the value and the power and the resilience of the work that artists and cultural workers do in such a um, stark way. And, um, you know, I just, I just feel called to support that part of, part of my, part of why I'm leaving this job is because I've gotten to see the gravity of COVID and of structural racism and white supremacy so close. Um, and the solutions, what will be required to stave off a potential event is going to require support and visibility at the federal level in a way that is um, may, maybe bigger than anything I've ever seen. So what I want to do for the next six months is avail myself to help in any way that can center culture and creatives in policymaking and COVID recovery at the federal level, because that scale of resource is going to be necessary to get to the other side. Yeah, I think so. Particularly if we're going to talk about sustained habit forming transformation. And 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 before we dive into that, I want to I want to I want to go back and, and maybe a little bit yeah. more. Right. I went all the way into yeah yeah, <laughs> but I want to go and maybe it's a decade, maybe a little more. I think we actually first met um, at another local sacred space, very important space within arts, culture, and goodness in Seattle, the Hidmo. Um, yeah, and I know this this is a little this is a little sad because we. One, one of the powerful female black voices in this community has now stepped to her next set of adventures. And I think we're yeah. all in a little less of a powerful place because of it. Um, yeah. So I want to talk, just talk a little bit about your experience with the Hedmo and what, what the work that Rawa Habde had in, in, in how it shapes your work. Ooh, yeah. Um, Rahua was was sunlight. Um, she, yeah. you know, I, I got I met Rahua through Hollis Wangware, who was who I recruited as an intern when she was eighteen years old and a student at Seattle University, because I saw her perform with You Speaks. You Speaks. Yep. You Speaks. Um, and I was like, I was like, that young woman is brilliant, and I want to have her help Youngstown find its voice. And so I, so I met Hollis, I hired Hollis as an intern um, and Hollis uh, was performing on the regular at the Hidmo and introduced me to Rahwa and Asmaret and uh, got to spend some time there. Um, it was such a, uh, a, a crucible of the community. I mean, it, it held and incubated and launched so many things. Um, I was privileged to host Raha's 30th birthday party at Youngstown, um, which was a, which was a pretty magical night. Um, you know, years, years, years later, we would work together when she worked at the mayor's office. Um, and you know, she, she nannied for my daughter as recently as like a year ago. Uh, she was a huge part of our life. And I think she was a huge part of this city. And so it's like macro and micro, right? It's like, I think that what Hidmo did for this community um, was catalytic and transformational. And I think what Rahua did for our family, which is much more personal, but like 
she was such a ray of light and she saw our daughter in such a powerful way and um, just feel so blessed that we had the time with her that we did. Um, yeah. And hope she's in, she's resting in power wherever she is now. Yep. And how those of us who have had an impact of her, of her rays can continue to, to shine and move forward. Um, I was if thinking, you look at the garden, yeah. she, the garden yeah. that she sprung, right? Like, oh, just yeah. think about, I mean, every time I went there, I think about like Jace and Tim Lennon was bartending and, and Canary Singh was performing and Dakota and like, you know, all these people who are like really pillars of the cultural community. Now they were sort of, that was a greenhouse, you know, that grew a lot of those starts. Um, I think many of them, I think many of them actually infiltrated uh, city government and are doing wonderful things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps that did happen. Perhaps. Um, I think we actually first met, it was, it was at the Hidmo, but it was a conversation at Youngstown Cultural Arts Center. This was when the mural was being painted because I was working on a project across the street with Delridge Community Center connecting youth in a media arts uh, workshop with youth who were actually painting the mural. And at the ribbon cutting, and I think at that time you have may, may have been in your current position for just about a year. It was pretty new. And you had asked me if I could help participate in this Arts and Music Commission Youth and Community Development Committee, trying to connect various aspects of, you might call it the the 57th floor and your floor, the 17th floor, if you will. You said Mm -hmm. to me then that I said, well, what are you hoping to do? And you said, I want to do nothing less than have arts access in every school by 2020. I went, whoa, that's a big, bold, audacious plan, given what I knew of Seattle schools and given what I knew about how arts has been sort of left out of the conversation in many ways. Um, If I look back, and if you look back, 2020, you and your, the office and the people that you got to work with, particularly through Creative Advantage, has got a long way to tick that box. Talk a little bit about just that goal and the framing of that work. Yeah. Um, and we would have gotten there if it wasn't for that pesky COVID. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, the Seattle used to have one of the best arts education curriculums in the country. And I think that's part of why it has been this wealth of creative output for generations, right? From Ray Charles and Jimi Hendrix to, to, you know, everything we have today. And um, what, you know, it, there was a double levy failure in the late 1970s, then the country elected Ronkin, and nationally, locally, and really disinvested in primary and secondary education. And one of the programs that was disproportionately pulled out of public education was arts, was arts education. Uh, LEE and civics and some others that we are seeing consequences of as well. And so basically, see public schools, uh, 2005, um, you know, we, we switched to neighborhood assigned schools, which meant you knew where you were going to go based on where you lived. Right. But schools that had PTAs that could raise money had really good arts education programs. Schools that did not have that did not have arts education programs. And so we, the, the Office of Arts and Culture, um, in 2007, approached the school district and said, hey, your visual and performing department at the district has 
not had any staff for going on a decade, if we give you $100,000 a year, will you reconstitute your visual and performing arts department? Mm. And for $100,000, they said yes. Um, and they hired Wynne Campbell and that, that eventually they've, they've really rebuilt that team. Um, and that, so that partnership began then. Fast forward a few years, it led to a bunch of, um, the establishment of a lot of new arts education class across the city, but it was still hit and miss. There were still gaps. And that attracted that partnership between the city and the school district, attracted attention of Wallace Foundation, who invested a million dollars in the city, well, in the district and then in the city, we shared money, um, to build a plan to restore arts learning to every student in Seattle. We spent uh, two years putting together that plan. We talked to about 2,000 people, students, teachers, arts educators, cultural institutions, labor unions, superintendents, mayors. We engaged everybody to make a plan, and the plan was formally into implementation formally, I think in March of 2013, as the creative advantage. Uh, it is the Seattle Public Schools K-12 Arts Plan. It is a collaboration between the district, our office, and the Seattle Foundation as our fiscal sponsor, along with dozens of practitioners, teaching artists, cultural partners. And uh, yeah, the goal was by 2020 to have access to arts education for every student, 52,000 kids in 104 schools um, everywhere in the city. And uh, we had hoped that the foundation would fund the implementation of this plan that launched in March of 2013, and they did not. Mm. So we, we made this big, ambitious plan and then did not have money to do it, and we did it anyway. Um, and shout out to uh, Mike McGinn and Jose Banda, the mayor and superintendent at the time, who said in spite of that, you know, when, the, I'll never forget the press release that went out that was essentially to inform our stakeholders that we didn't get the Wallace money was instead an announcement that we were launching this new initiative and that it was gonna start in 13 schools in the central area. I'm at Billy Gatzer and Washington Middle School. And, um, and you know, we then proceeded to add another uh, school feeder pattern um, a year up to including, you know, this, this year we would have engaged the final um, 20 or so schools in North Seattle uh, and begun their planning process. But, um, you know, what we've seen has been pretty transformational. And I think, um, you know, I thought was interesting when COVID hit and all, all the students were sent home and everybody was learning remotely or everyone was trying to learn remotely. Right. Uh, we found that the students that were engaged in the uh, media art skill center. So the, 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 um, the arts-focused vocational education program had some of the highest participation rates of any of any program in Seattle public schools. This education was keeping kids engaged in school, and they were, in many cases, being lost in the system. And so, um, you know, that that sort of walks us into the creative economy research that we did last year because we know the creative economy is growing at twice the rate of the rest of the economy and that the future of work looks a lot more like creativity and empathy than it does like jobs that could be replaced by robots because the robots are coming and they're going to take the jobs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 we always knew it was the right thing to do and it is the right thing to do in terms of social development. It's the right thing do if we're preparing young people for the 21st century workforce. 
and um, be able to see that come to life and to and to be engaged with the sheer number of partners who've informed that journey. Um, so much credit to Carrie Campbell, so much credit to Lara Davis, yep. um, folks who just, to Audrey Kearns, uh, to Gail Selhorst, to, to Ashraf Hasham, to Tina Lapadula. I mean, a universe of human beings carried this program. And I think in 10 years, we're gonna be talking about the impact that investment and those choices made on the city that we're gonna have then. So one of the next questions that, and I can't remember if I asked you or you asked me, but this question was put on the table. And this stems from what you were just talking about. How do we keep Seattle a thriving center for the creative economy and creative industries? And how do we center our values of equity and social justice and the way we build capacity for that work? It's a good question. and that's what we spent most of 2019 asking of ourselves. And uh, we spent probably about six months engaging uh, a couple of people, I think, in the end. <laughs> I don't remember the exact number. But we, we, we had this conversation around what would it take to expand our creative economy, also reducing disparities in our creative industries. Because we we look looking at uh, Nick's code data, we saw that we had some of the highest paying creative economy jobs in the country via um, gaming services, but video games, like a lot of the digital um, creative economy work. Those jobs were paying great, uh, and they were overwhelmingly white dudes in those jobs. Yep. Meanwhile, our creators, the musicians, the actors, the filmmakers. And a lot of the crews that support them were paid very, very poorly relative to, to national average. Now, that data is imperfect because it doesn't, we've never really gotten our arms around the gig economy and around uh, solopreneurs and, and that whole universe of things. But, but what we did know pretty clearly at a high level was that this was an expanding part of the economy and there was an inequity in who had access to those opportunities. So, Part of it is a supply question and part of it is a demand question. The supply question, I think, is very connected to creative advantage, media art skill centers, wiring that into post-secondary education, like the Seattle colleges, where our students can go for free. Um, so if we can build the right curriculum in the colleges, like what Intamon is doing right now with their theater program, for example, um, then I think we can build, we could do some of the supply. On the demand side, uh, you know, I think we have to partner with the businesses that are here and we have to grow the business that we want to see. And I think there's a public policy part of that. I think we need to prioritize the growth of sectors that we know are going to feed the economy. Um, and I think, um, I think we need to be collaborative um, as, as, as government and with our local business community. I think we need to incentivize the behavior we want to see. We need to punish the behavior we don't want to see. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, I'm not, you know, economic development isn't my, isn't my training, isn't my background, but I can tell you that the economic development director sees the same thing I see. And so hopefully, you know, where we landed was, there will be, we are creating this position of a creative economy director, creative industries director with a focus on inclusive economy. Um, that uh, was actually that job just went out two days ago, I think. And um, 
And with that role comes a focused commitment and strategy around the demand side. Uh, I think that we, um, uh, I think we will, we arts office and we in partnership with the school, the colleges, the education office will stay focused on the supply side uh, and work collaboratively with our partners in economic development, the film and music on, um, on, the, on the, the creative economy demand side. Yeah, I, I, I want to get to how to build the infrastructure. And maybe this takes federal incentivization because the work that's gone on has been, I think, a well-crafted partnership with the Seattle Public Schools and with local municipal government. Now the role that industry and business and how is that sort of framed in this ecology. But before we get to those specifics, I, I want to focus a little bit on the second part of the question, the values of equity and social justice. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote an article that, that came out a little bit about you, and, I, and, I, and I'm going to use that to, to lead into the question. You said, through my time at the city, because the city has a significant commitment and focus on racial equity, I've come to understand the primacy of race, that race is almost always the determinant factor. And while class and ability and gender are always a very real structure that predict the kind of lived experience people are going to have, the pervasiveness of race and the way race has been used as a vehicle to protect resources, to make laws, to govern communities, it's become clear from the theft of indigenous land to the theft of slave labor, to Chinese Exclusion Act, to redlining, that, that there's this long history of the public sector using race as a way to privilege one group of people for another. And so I think there's an opportunity for the government to mitigate that harm that it has caused. And your work, your role, and your position, I think, has really provided a beacon for what and how that can unfold and what that looks like. And I would imagine even the, the choice to step back now to let other leadership come in live that out. Talk, talk to me about that quote and, and how you see that framing Seattle, if not the Northwest moving forward. Um, I, when I to the city in 2012, we talked a lot about race and social justice and we did trainings where we would watch all city employees would do, we'd watch race, the power of an illusion. We'd learn about, white privilege about racism, but I would argue that our budget and policy decisions did not reflect our rhetoric or our stated views. And so I really wanted to hold our work accountable to um, the values we articulated. And I think that's a journey we're, we're still on as an office and that I'm still on personally. Yeah. But I, when you look at anything our office has done in the time that I've been there, um, creative Advantage, King Street Station, the Cultural Space Agency, the Creative Economy work. The through line of all of it is, is racial equity. The through line in all of it is that the system as it exists now is not working adequately. It needs to be designed with an explicit commitment to a set of shared values. And those racial equity will not just benefit people of color. Racial equity will benefit everyone. We will all be better if we can build the systems. Um, and, you know, I, in particular, racial equity in the context of arts and culture is important to me because 
the act of pursuing racial justice is a lot like the act of creating work. You have to imagine something that's never existed, and then you have to try and fail and try again to bring it to the world. Uh, and it is that that belief and that imagination and that hope and that aspiration that you can do that and get there that I think position artists to be pretty capable, um, per, you know, uh, contributors to the conversation. So, you know, to me, it's all, it is, it is, it is all connected in that way. Um, and I've seen and been incredibly privileged to, to, to experience the impact of that happens and when it's successful. Uh, the grand opening of King Street is that I will never get. Yeah. Um, and, and what a leap of faith in, in a hundred ways that was. Um, but I think that, it, it, you know, I think I'm in the office as far as I know how to in the context of those values and the work that I was hired to do uh, and, and feel accountable to. I am personally really interested in my leadership journey to do what my friend uh, Tatiana in Denver calls uh, a leadership opportunity of getting out and pushing. Instead of driving the car, let's get behind, get some other folks in the front seat and let's push, which is I am excited to amplify other voices. I'm excited to bring new folks into leadership. I'm excited to center the narratives of folks that don't look like me. Um, and to you, the rooms I've been invited into and the privileges I've been given or earned um, to lift up more folks, to bring more voices to the table. I think we will all be better for that. And I think going all the way back to this national moment that we're in um, and this question about what we do to, to, to grow a creative economy, I think we need to invest in people. In the creatives and the creators directly. So I think we need a massive work stimulus like WPA, like ACETA, um, that puts resources directly in the hands of our creative community, particularly those most impacted by structural racism, so that they can design the new systems, the new interventions that will govern our lives, that will employ our young people. Um, I think that that is part of the solution. And what I want to do is find ways to unlock that potential, find ways to resource those voices, those stories, those narratives, those entrepreneurial ideas um, in a in of abundance to not treat this like there's one pie that can only be divided so many ways, but to make more pie. The government has the ability to print money. So let's be thoughtful about what we're printing that money and what we're spending it on, and let's have a multiplier effect. If we can invest in impacted BIPOC creatives right now, we not only mitigate their harm that's been caused by COVID, we also redeploy them to meet these urgent needs that have, that have, that have revealed themselves with all this isolation and all of this social disconnect. And we're putting a down payment on the creative economy we're capable of in the future. So we're gonna actually have a stronger, more resilient economy 10 years from now, if right now we can resource the people who are going to be the engine of that going forward. So this is Learning Matters, a bridge to practice. And, and one of the fun aspects that I like about hosting this podcast is I get to talk with good people and give them the opportunity to talk about the good people who influence them. And I'm always interested in finding out 
Randy, who was an influential teacher? This could be informally or formally in your life. Um, I always like to shout out a college professor I had named Brian McMorrow, who I've never been able to find, but I took classes from him in my sophomore year of college, which, um, looking back was pretty transformational for me. I was a little bit floaty academically. I had like discovered a love of like music and organizing and, you know, and with producing lots of concerts, uh, I wasn't a very good student at that point, but he, I took these leadership and management classes with him where I got to apply leadership and management principles and work to the music and production work I was doing, arts and culture work I was doing. And so I got, that's kind of how I became an arts administrator was like marrying uh, an administrative skill set with a passion for um, art and culture and creativity really via production, event production. Um, so that was pretty, he was transformational in that way. Leadership from the Heart was a book I remember he assigned that, that had a big impact on me. Um, um, also, you know, early early leader in my racial justice journey was uh, author Noel Ignatiev wrote a book called How the Irish Became White. Um, and he came to Evergreen where I went to undergrad and uh, at the day of absence, day of presence. And I got to interview him on a video show. And I had never thought about the construct of whiteness before. I did a lot of like um, sort of uh, class theory, a lot of like political economy work, but I had never really wrestled with race. Um, and that book opened my eyes. To, that was probably the beginning of my racial equity journey. Um, I think it was my junior year in college. Yep, yep. As I went through life, I mean, Paul Fishber was my, my mentor, was my teacher. Um, when he hired me to run the Youngstown Cultural Arts Center as the founding director of uh, television. Is he, is he a teacher at Chief Self? He was. Yeah. He, just reti he retired. He retired. Uh, oh, I got to work with him a couple years ago. Oh, man, he's, yeah. I, I got to get him on the show. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's yeah. a remarkable human being. Yeah, he just yeah. taught me how to, be a, how to be a better man, how to be yeah, a better yeah, person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, in college, I, I, in grad school at the Evans School at UW, um, I was really moved by the, by the practitioners, by Diana Gale and by Dwight Dively, um, by the folks who like ran agencies and then told us about that experience. Um, and that, you know, that's as I enter my journey as a college faculty for the first time, that is, that is what I'm modeling my practice on. Even Brian McMorrow came to Evergreen as a teacher from being the head bill writer for the Department of Transportation at the state capitol in Olympia. Yeah. So I think I'm, I am drawn to people who have the lived experience versus the theoretical. And that's just how my mind is wired. It's good that I went to an experiential college, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, so yeah, I guess the, so those are, and then, you know, I, I don't, I, I Alberta, though he was my intern and my employee, I think was also a, a bit of a mentor for me that he, Seeing how he utilized his public policy degree from the Evans School is what compelled me to go to the Evans School uh, ah, because I saw yeah. him use those skills and abilities to take to see public, to see policy as an instrument of social change and of arts and culture was something I hadn't connected before. Um, so I, I mean, he always calls me, me his mentor. I think that that goes both ways. 
because um, he taught me a lot too. Well, what uh, I where I first encountered and got to know Alberto was at the Youngstown Cultural Arts Center, participating in the Seattle Fandango workshops that were taking place there that brought together, you know, these fandangueros, a uh, musical tradition around participatory, not performance-based music, but connecting it with hip-hop artists and youth from Seattle in a similar space. So we were crossing language and, and gender and, and music styles, and Youngstown created the space for this beautifully broken magic to happen. It was great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what a privilege to get to, to, to found and run that space for five or six years. And, uh, I actually, I got, I went down to LA to speak, uh, conference and, uh, I, I saw Quetzal. He's down in LA doing amazing work in Los Angeles. It's good to see him. We could, we will, uh, well, anyway, we could go do a whole Quetzal conversation, but, uh, I want, I want to talk about, you're now walking into a university classroom. You're going to be teaching in the university of Seattle's arts leadership program. So, and you mentioned this before coming on, so that you're actually building a syllabus and, and doing, going through that planning process. And I'm always interested in sort of the mechanics, if you will, of planning and building a syllabus, which is basically a contract that you establish with the learners on, this is what we hope to do. And this is how we do this. And this is how I'm going to inform you and give you feedback in this journey together. One of the things that I really appreciated about getting to spend some time with you and seeing your leadership style, which I would describe within the context of having a servant leadership emergent pedagogy. You create a situation where people around the table are invited to put as much on the table as possible and really build their capacity so everyone calls and accentuates their own inner leadership ability. But then you have this um, ability to take in lots of different trajectories, lots of different paths, and create some type of thematic understanding so it almost composes into a flow that everyone can jam to. It's, it's a it's a really neat trick that not a lot of people can do because you invite a bass player into the mix, everything's going to sound like a bass, right? <laughs> you, well, I, uh, <laughs> when I, um, when we had our foundation week at grad school at the Evans School, they asked everyone to, they asked everyone in the first week to bring a totem. What's a thing that represents to you? Um, yeah. I brought a DJ mixer. There you I've, go. Been a, I've been a DJ, radio and club DJ for, I don't know, right. forever. There you go. The ones and twos, Mr. Selector. Okay. Yeah, because the, the, the act of DJing is, the, is essentially taking two source materials and blending them to create something more interesting than individual parts uh, and manipulating those sounds in a way that improves them and, and enhances them. But you need the source material to do it. Right. I, was, I, was having, I was on a different call this morning helping these people figure out a co-op housing model because I also live in a little experiment housing co-op. Um, and I was like, I, I, in leaving this job at the city, I, I'm really thinking about what I'm good at because I don't know what I'm going to do next. I have lots of ideas, lots of interests, but I've tried, I think the two things I'm pretty good at, one is that, is that DJing, it's facilitation that pulls together lots of different viewpoints to make something that's, that's, that's in harmony, that makes something that sings, um, I, I did that consultant for a number of years before I came to the city. I think that is essentially what I've done as the director of the arts office. And I think that's what I did at Youngstown too. The other thing that I, that I think I'm at is 
um, operationalizing dreams. So lots of people have big things they want to do and, and often they don't have a sense of how to get there. And right. so I, I, that's, that, those two things, the facilitation is how I will hold space in real time with the students. And that reveals itself when you're in the room with everybody. Their first assignment was introduce yourself. Tell me about you. Tell me what you want to get from this class. You know, like basic. The roadmap is like you have a dream. How do you construct a way to get there? Uh, and I think that's the creative advantage, right? If we have a goal of putting arts education in every school by 2020, how do you do that? If you want to take over the abandoned third floor of a 110-year-old train station and turn it into a cultural hub, how do you do that? If you want to see an economy that's inclusive of more people and that reflects creativity and human potential, how do you do that? I, I like to figure out the how. Um, and so... In a, you know, putting together a, I mean, the putting this was fascinating also because it was a very individual experience. My life, particularly for the last year, is literally 60 meetings a week. Um, and, and it's improvisationally facilitating spaces one after another all the time. And now it's going to be this very linear, very sort of internal, very different cadence experience. And so, like, I was like forming new muscles in my brain, like, I don't know how many articles is enough articles, how many chapters of the book. And so I basically like, and, and I inherited a, the class that I'm teaching is called resource development in the arts, essentially a fundraising class. And um, the syllabus that I was given was fine, but it was also very like 1995, right? It was like, right, right. if I was, if I, if I thought these kids were going to go get jobs in the development department at the symphony, then it would be fine. But I don't think that's what these kids are here for. And I don't know how many of those jobs there are. So, and there was absolutely no acknowledgement of, of race or equity or anything of that nature. And so I have the source material, like complete profit fundraising, because you do need to understand what a nonprofit is and what a board does and what a foundation is and how an endowment works. Like there are mechanics that are important to know, but we're also going to read decolonizing wealth because you have to understand um, the structural impact and the origins of the system that we're playing in so we can change that system. Right. Uh, to, to Teaching them the status quo is, in, is not enough. We need to teach them how to change the status quo. And so that's the, that is how I try to build the curriculum. That's like, it starts with, here's the fundamentals. It pivots about halfway through <laughs> into now we have to change everything. Yeah, and we'll I think... <laughs> and we'll see. And I'm not sure if you're going to be able to hold space physically, given how things are unfolding or whether your sessions will be via Zoom. But the context of the shifting from that improvisational face to face to being intentional in a class curricula to I think Zoom calls for the necessity to be so much more intentional in the things that we try to create. And we also know yeah. it's very fatiguing so you need to spend less time, right? Because I don't care how great someone is at holding court, and even if they're great lecturing, you can only go so long within a Zoom session before you get to the, you know, the Charlie Brown wah, wah, wah vibe, right? Yeah, no, and we all, we all get Zoom fatigue. And, oh, yeah. uh, and, you know, my class meets three hours a week on Monday nights. So, um and there's two national holidays in my 10-week quarter on Mondays. Yeah. So I actually have <laughs> about <laughs> eight, 
what 24 I have 24 hours of contact time with these young people yeah um and in that 24 hour I mean and to me the room where it happens is like the most important part because the it particularly in the context of fundraising the most important thing you will learn is relationship management relationship stewardship everything is about relationships that's how grant making works that's how in donor cultivation works that's how gofundmes work that's everything yeah, yeah. um so that time in the room is critical but also they're going to be burnt by six o'clock on monday night you know what i mean like oh yeah so it's going to be this it will be virtual this quarter and at least it's synchronous um, so I can, in, I can interact with them. Uh, I have friends who are teaching asynchronous classes and I'm like, Oh my God, you have to record a lecture with no human sounding board. Like, yeah, yeah that seems, that seems really hard. But um, you know, if I stick with it, I've, I have long wanted to teach. Um, I, I, my passion is young people and, uh, and building future leadership and passing on what I know and storytelling Um and uh, maybe this will be my thing. Maybe, you know, maybe I will teach three classes come the summer and they will be in person again in the fall. And like, who knows? But I, you know, for now, uh, um, it is it is building a new muscle in my brain and figuring out how to be Professor Ingstrom. So here's, uh, you know, this, this in two cents and $4 will buy you a cup of coffee or whatever the price is. And I learned this, this technique from uh, Daniel Banks, who taught uh, hip hop theater at NYU. It's, a, it's an introductory exercise. He calls it the name game. And he gets people physically in a room in a circle looking at each other. And the idea is you say your name and what you hope to get out of this class. And then as soon as you're done, you toss it to anyone else and they have to repeat who you, what you just said before they say their name. And it's a technique to try to instill active listening. And the first time, you know... You pass it. Hi, I'm Scott. I'm here to have an engaging conversation. And then I toss it to Randy. And then you go right into your name. Yeah, Everyone here. Yeah. Yeah. Then, But if you don't, people go, hold up, wait a minute. And then I've had to learn how to transfer and do that within a um, Zoom environment. And the, the there's two constraints. One is how to encourage people to turn their cameras on when you can't necessarily mandate that. So you have to give them a good reason to do that. Um, but two, the, 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 the idea of instilling, how do you listen to understand before you listen to respond, I think is a really powerful um, competency. So I, I give you that tip and you take it as you will, if that may help you in your introductions. That's, that's interesting advice. I like that. Um, one thing that uh, I, I stole from my friend and mentor, Joaquin Haranz, who's another person who, uh, yep. who has been a mentor at the Evans School, uh, he would give an assignment in his class where they would all get a good grade if they actually collaborated and worked together, regardless of the outcome of the project, because the point wasn't the outcome of the project. The point was learning how to work together. Yeah. Um, if you can teach folks how to collaborate, that in and of itself is an incredibly powerful skill. And I think that's the important point. You need, people need to be taught how to collaborate. I mean, we tend to naturally collaborate on the playground. I would argue that the formal school system, especially in elementary school, as you get into middle school, devalues the collaborative aspect. And we need to flip it. Now, not in arts, and particularly arts integrated teaching and learning. But I think uh, students need to have that collaborative experience scaffolded 
and and get a chance to practice that because it's it's that practice that really helps. Well, Randy, we reached the point of the show where we're going to give the Yara wheel a spin. Are you ready to give this a spin? Spin it up. Here we go. Which living person do you most admire? What is it that you most dislike? When and where were you happiest? Which historical figure do you most identify with? How does your faith show up in your teaching? What is your greatest extravagance? What is your most treasured possession? Which talent would you most like to have? What is your greatest fear? It landed on what is your greatest fear? Huh. Yeah. Um, I think it's failure. Uh, I mean, I, I wrestle with this a lot because this is the second time I've quit job, became a pretty big part of my identity without a real clear plan. Um, and I think, you know, we struggle with how one would define um failure <laughs> a failure in whose terms what does failure mean is it vocational interpersonal is it in terms of health or wealth um but i think i'm afraid of um of not being successful that i won't figure out my next thing i don't i don't really intellectually think that happened but i think that is the fear that eats away at me so that's my personal fear my external biggest fear is that this country will never reconcile its white supremacist history that that we that the civil war never actually ended that we never actually acknowledge what we did to the indigenous people of this country that we that we don't acknowledge where our wealth came from and whose labor was stolen to do that um that we can't confront the systemic consistent racialization that this country was built on and because we can't acknowledge it, we can never fix it. Yeah. Um, and I'm com I'm committed to challenging that with every ounce of my soul. But um, but that is a fear that we're you know I just watched National Lampoon's cosplay edition, you know, uh, and and only because they're incompetent did it not work, but not for lack of trying. Right. And right. Uh, you know we got to be better. And yeah. so my fear is that my fear is that we're not up to it. I hope I'm wrong. I yeah. hope that doesn't come to pass. My uh, my 17 year old daughter. Um, we just had breakfast conversation re responding to I, and I, I Joe Biden's quote was, "Come on, America, we are better than this." And her line was, "Are we?" And what I was hoping to say is, "No, this is who we are, but this is not who we need to necessarily be." And how are we going to get better and how can we become better? And hopefully that's a starting point for a conversation, a long conversation. Um, and, and a conversation that actually gets to action. Yeah, you can't have reconciliation without the truth. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I, I think it's still an open question. I don't think it's decided that that's that's who we have to be. But that right. is that is definitely who we are now. And, you know, the only um upside of a of four years of trump tyranny is it really pulled the curtain back on how far we have to go it you know there there's no hiding from the the sins of our country anymore right. it is real visible um it's always been there ask any person of color but um but i think a lot of us 
after an administration got maybe lulled a little bit. A lot of folks thought we were we were past it. Biden certainly thinks that. Um, and I hope he maintains that optimism, but I also hope he does the work to figure out why we are that way right now. Um, so yeah, at least we know. You can't do nothing if you don't know. <laughs> So as, as we wind down th this conversation, I have in front of me a list of, I, of that I was compiling of some of the things that, and I know you typically aren't one to shout from the rooftop, so I, I want to be careful, but you, there are some really amazing and I think ground shifting, scene shifting work that you were able to be a part of and, and to lead from the creative advantage, thinking about innovative arts initiatives in Seattle, to the research on the creative economy, to the to the stewarded infrastructure, things like Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. Um, what 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 happened at King Street Station? That then that, that that space is utterly amazing. The race and equity work, and you know the cultural space agency. You know, there's a great laundry list, and I don't, I want to get beyond the list because what I want what I want to ask, I want to close on, and this brings us back to where we started. As you move to this next adventure, you talked about how can federal resources be put into play to support things like, and I'm going to say, creative advantage, to support things like the places like the HIDMO or the cultural space agency work. What is that connection with federal support, in this case, federal dollars, that you think needs to happen? Well, that's um, that's why I've, I've, I'm thinking a lot about how we position the cultural sector, the creative workforce in the Biden transition. Yeah. Because we've been able to do these things in Seattle because we've been able to collaborate inside the machinery of city government across departments, across sectors, um, and lots of different people. And you need there is an active process of connecting the dots and organizing partnerships and and work planning that requires um, sort of someone to have their their hands on the till. And I think if we don't have someone like that in a policy advisor position in the White House, if we don't have someone on the Domestic Policy Council, uh, the National Service Corps, um, we the Department of Transportation. Um, I just think that we need to. We have an education department that invests billions of dollars in public education. Could we be more explicit about resourcing the things that we know are going to grow the economy in the places where that's most important in the future? And can we make investments that are consistent with and reflect our values? Um, I, that's probably easier with education than it is with like a new WA because a workforce intervention around the creative economy is um, a much more unusual or much more infrequent thing. But um, I think we're, it's something that we should do and I want to figure out how to do it. But how to do it is going to be by working inside of that machinery and figuring out, okay, if Buttigieg is going to run DOT and Buttigieg is going to lead recovery, recovery is going to follow an infrastructure path. So if an infrastructure path is going to be where the resources come from, how do we connect and align a creative workforce intervention to the work of SDOT? And then we look at like the artist in residence program that we have with SDOT here in Seattle. And we look at the art plan that Chris and Ramirez just published. And we have a bit of a roadmap. 
What does it look like to scale that? How do we then bring in the National Service Corps so that we can deploy an AmeriCorps to provide the vocational capacity uh, to, in particular, bring a bunch of young people who've been devastated by COVID? Because if you're 16 to 24, uh, COVID has been a game-changingly bad thing. Um, it just stole away, you know, those years. Uh, I, I see an AmeriCorps a program being a vehicle to do an intentional creative economy-like uh, intervention, perhaps through the Department of Transportation, through an infrastructure stimulus. Now, how to connect all those dots, like for reals in DC? I don't know. That's what I'm going to see if I can figure out over the next several months, because they're about to hire 4,000 people between January 5th and March 1st to run the bureaucracy, including Mr. Buttigieg. Um, or Secretary Buttigieg, is that what he's called? If he's the Secretary, yep, yep, yep. So, you know, that's interesting. Um, how, how do we make that work? I want, I, want to, uh, tr- I want to see if the way we were able to successfully build policy at the city can be replicated federally because the scale of resources that could come federally would be so much more consequential. And frankly, we need it. We both need new systems and we desperately need uh, funding. So if we can package those things together in an innovative way, that's where I see it going, I hope. That's what I'm going to avail myself to do these next six months. Like, hey, I'm just here to help. Paid yeah. unpaid, wherever I can be useful. Well, I hope, and I think that's the model that needs to come up. You know, we invoked Quetzal a while ago. You know, the, 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 the notion of a, of a horizontal bottom-up, I think, is really important. The model's been established locally. It, it has demonstrated the efficacy and what can happen. How do you create a national support infrastructure to allow for those local communities to implement and create plans and a criteria that makes sense to them, but knowing that it's bolstered and supported? And, and you know, so I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a an either or scenario. We need to get to a both and situation. We just need to practice the muscle of how to do that because. These are blazing some trails that we haven't seen since, you know, FDR, if you will, in some of the works. And it would be great to see yeah. artists and arts integration. It's not art for art's sake, arts for the music class per se, but integrating the creative practice and across sectors that I think is key. And I, I look forward to seeing the help that you're able to provide and maybe throwing in a little bit of my help there too. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, yeah. I, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm heartened by the folks that I find myself, uh, in and out of connections with, you know, like over time, right. To me, it's a, it's a, it's all a long game. And, uh, you know, the fact that we kicked it at Hidmo, Youngstown and at the city, and we're talking now, um, as we're both in higher ed, um, you know, that's, that gives me, that gives me, uh, hope that we'll stay connected and it's going to take a lot of hands and a lot of heart um, to, to, to pull something off at scale. So we're going to need all the folks we can get. And just to go back to what you said for creating that environment where youth are centered, youth speaks, <laughs> right? Um, I think is one of the lessons and one of the fascinating um, uh, good things that I see that came out of what youth were able to do this summer through their demonstration, through, through their example, that gives me a, a little bit of hope. Yeah. Well, Randy, hey, I, I, you know, as you enter into this next phase, one chapter leads to another chapter. 
I, I, I wish you and family. I didn't. Hey, shout out to the fam. How's the little one? I guess she's getting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. she's thriving in all of this, actually. I mean, she's five. Yeah. And we have a mini preschool pod here of three kids. And, you know, she has a lot of time with her parents and she's thriving. Yep. Um, she's an awesome kid. Uh, for those folks who, who, who listen to the show, you're going to think that I'm repeating myself, but it's one of my favorite phrases. I, I love the, the notion of curation because curation is rooted in the Latin word cure, which is a priestly function to care for one's soul. Randy, I just want to thank you for your carefulness and being full of care and how you have led and followed in the work that you've done, particularly with the people that you know, shout outs to, you've shouted out a lot of people, but a, a lot of amazing people I've got to work with because of people you put around it were asked to be around the table. So thank you for your care. And I just wish you the, all the best in the con con continued care that I, I know you'll, you'll be uh, engaged in. Thank you, Scott. It's nice, it's nice to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. So again, this is Learning Matters, a bridge to practice, and we'll be talking together again real soon. Mm -hmm.